Uh, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I'm really pleased to be able to welcome our speaker tonight, John McDonald. Um, John kindly agreed to talk to us some months ago. Indeed, he was first scheduled to speak last December, on the 12th of December, to be precise. But Boris Johnson seems to have been so concerned about what he might have said that he rushed forward and called a general election for that very day. So, of course, we had to reschedule John's contribution, and I'm very, very pleased indeed that we're able to have it now. John, as most of you will know, was, of course, until recently the Labor Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, and his thoughtful voice has, I think, been central to public debate, especially in the last five years. But he's made a contribution to public life for many decades before that. After working for the trade union movement, he was very involved in local government, including, of course, as a kind of a Chancellor of the Exchequer for London. And then he became an MP some 23 years ago or so. But he's also been continuously engaged in intellectual life. And uh, he, he attended university as a mature age student he has a great interest in progressive ideas, and, and, and not just with respect to the history of those ideas, especially the history of the socialist tradition, but also with fresh ideas and fresh ways of thinking about ideas, ideas like economic democracy that could potentially reanimate that tradition. And I think his interest in those respects um, continue on. You might have seen that he's now involved in a new international group, the Progressive International, which seeks to forward and develop some of these ideas. Well, um, John's going to be talking to us today on, on Labor and the left, talking, of course, in the wake of Labor's defeat and the extraordinary onset of the global virus crisis. He'll be talking for about 45 or perhaps 50 minutes, and then we should have a good chunk of half an hour or so for questions and discussion. And because we're in this um, remote format, just be aware that if you want to ask a question, you should do it via the Q&A tab. And when you do, please um, say who you are and where you're from so that we can, we can announce that if we are able to call your question. Of course, we can't call everybody's question, but we'll try to do our best. So um, without any further ado, I can't do what I would normally do and ask you to join me in clapping to welcome our speaker, but I will metaphorically clap and welcome our speaker, <laughs> John McDonald, MP. Thanks, Robbie. That was really nice of you. Okay, I, I'm going to talk. The title was... What would it take to secure a left Labour government? But the subtitle was, is Ralph Miliband's work still of any relevance? And has the pandemic changed the political and economic rules? I think they have. Anyway, look, first of all, thanks for inviting me to, to give this lecture. It, it is a real privilege. Uh, it's a special privilege because it's in the name of Ralph Miliband. And Ralph was... Well, someone whose work significantly influenced um, the ideas and strategies of so many socialists of my generation. We worked in the afterglow of the first great wave of influence of Gramsci's writings that swept across the left in this country and elsewhere. So Ralph, for many of us, he embodied for us Gramsci's concept of the socialist intellectual and he had the ability when he spoke or when he wrote to explain in, I think, actually in deceptively straightforward terms, how a capitalist society operated and then sketch out an understanding of what socialism means and what it could look like in practice. 
I have to say the attraction of his work as well was that it came at a time when the complexity of the language in much of the socialist discourse, in particular of Althusser and his English disciples, appeared just so distant from the actual political and industrial struggles of working class people that were kicking off in this country on our streets and on picket lines. In contrast, Ralph Miliband's work was such a valuable, accessible tool for us in our attempts to, well, from the left, to explain the world we faced, what alternatives there are, and the forces we're up against. Actually, for me also, he was the true heir of another of the LSE's greats, Harold Lasky, someone too often forgotten now, whose work and reputation, I think, desperately need reasserting. Uh, I'm keen not to see Lasky's work and role continue to fade so much in the shadows as it has in recent decades. So, so much of Lasky's writings, I think, is still so relevant today for our understanding of the history and the role of our political institutions, and yes, actually, for designing the future. So I have this, I have this harboring ambition to organise over the next year a new initiative to celebrate the lineage of the work of Lasky onto Miliband. As a Labour Party member, uh, my, my problem with being such an ardent advocate of Ralph Miliband's writings was inevitably friend and foe alike could never resist referring me to the last paragraphs of his early book, Parliamentary Socialism. Let me painfully quote them to you, shall I? It says, he finished off the book in, in this way. He said, the Labour left in Parliament can mount episodic revolts on this or that issue, though with dubious effect, and can act as a pressure group upon Labour leaders with equally uncertain impact. But more than this cannot be expected, it cannot be expected to do. What this means is that the Labour Party will not be transformed into a party seriously concerned with socialist change, he went on to say his leaders may have to respond with radical sounding noises to the pressures and demands of their activists. Even so, they will see to it that the Labour Party remains in practice what it's always been, a party of modest social reform in a capitalist system within whose confines it is ever more firmly and by now irrevocably rooted. So in, in Ralph's eyes, <laughs> the Labour Party activists like me stood condemned of holding, and I just quote what he deemed us as holding paralyzing illusions about the true purpose and role of the Labour Party. Well, just <laughs> despite being so brutally scorned by Ralph, there were many of us in the Labour Party that cherished his work, and as you know, he's a, a good friend of Tony Benn and many of us. So, quite simply, um, we took it upon ourselves to prove him wrong. Uh, to demonstrate that in practice, the Labour Party could and would be an instrument to secure socialist change, or at least advance that change. Love describes socialism, and I thought actually it's one of the best forms of the description which means socialism active. He described it as a new social order whose realisation is a process stretching over generations and which may never be fully achieved but socialism involves a permanent striving to advance the goals that define it. So if nothing else, many of us aim to assert that the Labour Party could play a role in that permanent striving. You know, for us, um, 
other people's perennial hopes and sometimes um, clung to by Ralph himself, that a new socialist party or revolutionary formation would emerge to save us all. Well, they were regularly dashed anyway by the harsh experience of British political culture, but also aided and abetted by the first past the post system. Shortly after I became Shadow Chancellor, I was photographed during an interview and on my table, which appeared in the photograph, was Ralph Miliband's last book, Socialism for a Skeptical Age. It was the book that I'd recommended to all of my team to, to read to appreciate where I was coming from. And of course, um, for the establishment media pack, this is further evidence that I was a Marxist committed to the overthrow of civilization and all that British people held dear. Year after year, actually, on the, uh, what were supposed to be serious political programs, when the producer had run out of serious questions and in attempts to get a bit of a headline, the interviewer would be prompted to quiz me on whether I was a Marxist. And I always, well, I tried mostly patiently, I always explained that I was a socialist, drawing upon a long tradition of writers and theorists from Robert Owen to Marx to William Morris to R.H. Tony, Tony and to Ben. <clears throat> and occasionally I threw in the name of Miliband, well, to show some confusion over which generation of Millibands I was referring to. So apologies, Ed and uh, David, on that one. Um, just as an aside on the, um, on the, the, what, the one incident I treasure the most in this long campaign of character assassination against us was when the male accused me of being a um, KGB agent. Bizarrely, um, traveling to Guildford to receive my orders from the, my KGB controller. Why Guildford? I, I've never fully understood. But um, after, for a few public meetings after that, so as not to dis, well, not to disappoint the readers of the mail, I, would, I opened my speeches in Russian with Strasvitya Tavarici. Maybe an act of provocation. Anyway, let me turn to Ralph's last book, Socialism for a Skeptical Age because it did have considerable influence on me and subsequent events. Ralph completed it in his last year. It's actually, it's a moving story that his wife, Marion, and sons, David and Ed, worked hard to get the draft to the publishers so that Ralph saw the proofs in the weeks before he died in, in hospital. In the foreword to the book, Marion, David and Ed wrote that the book was, I quote, an argument for fundamental social and economic change, stretching well beyond one lifetime. I think that was written with typical Miliband modesty. And they went on to say, if it succeeds in stimulating further debate about the nature of change and how to achieve it, it will serve the twin purposes of political and scholarly engagement for which it was intended. As I say, that's typical Miliband modesty because it did so much more and present an argument for socialism or for further debate. For me, it was more of a handbook for radical change, and it did inform much of the political program and strategy leading up to the publication of the Labour Party manifesto that took us within a political inch of Labour forming a government in 2017. That wave of support for the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership broke on the rocks of the 2019 general election. And as we've seen from the recent report 
published published today in tomorrow's papers, there are a number of analyses like that and speculations why that loss occurred, and which obviously need to be addressed to inform Labour's future strategy, and I'm sure they will. But I contend that in the light of the dramatically changed economic and political circumstances created by the coronavirus pandemic, Ralph Miliband's ideas provide the intellectual impetus and, yes, a sense of direction for the next wave of a Labour surge that could take the party into government. Because these are the ideas that are not only essential to create the post-pandemic society we need, but also reflect some of the lessons learnt by us all in the tragedies of this pandemic. I think they're also especially relevant as we must now immediately move on to confront the fundamental crisis of the existential threat of climate change. I well remember speaking on a platform with Ralph in the mid-1980s where, as in his last book, he very eloquently set out his critique of capitalism. A system, as he described it, that held out the promise of providing at least the potential for what he described as a materially secure and morally decent life for all. But though capitalism has produced the potential to do so, as he explained by its very nature, it's incapable of delivering it. He summed up the problem, I thought very neatly, that capitalism is driven by the micro-rationality of the firm not by the macro-rationality required by society. The result he saw was a society still blighted by poverty and deprivation, homelessness, preventable disease, and what he described as despair. The origins of much of this distress was the exploitation and insecurity of wage earners, never safe from unemployment, resulting in low wages and the inevitable inequalities in the distribution of wealth and power and opportunities within our society. So the question is, does, does this critique still stack up? And more importantly, is it still of any political relevance? Well, in hard facts, after 10 years of austerity, Following the banking crisis in 2007-2008, it doesn't just stack up, it cries out. If Ralph was with us now, he'd be expressing once more, I believe, his heartfelt anger that in the 21st century, there are over 4 million of our children living in poverty in the UK. The expectation before the pandemic, the expectation before the pandemic was this will be over four, 5 million children by 2022. You just add to that, 125,000 of our children are being brought up homeless in temporary accommodation. And last year, we discovered some of them living in families that are living in shipping containers. And it's hardly wonder that over two-thirds of our children living in poverty live in a household where someone is at work. Because up until earlier this year, wage levels were still below the, still below the level of the crash of 2002, 2008. 
and the jobs growth boasted by, about by many Tory politicians has produced an economy dependent on low-paid, insecure work. There are now nearly a million, a million of our people on zero-hour contracts, four million workers who are in insecure work. And the, the blight of low and stagnating wages well, unsurprisingly, it's followed the incremental attacks on trade union rights and the introduction of restrictions on basic access to legal protection so that justice at work for many years denied. And privatization and outsourcing of public services have been the driving forces often to undercut wages and terms and conditions of employment. If you link to this, the the dominance of neoliberal trickle-down economics for large parts of the last 40 years, which have dictated, well, tax cuts to the rich and corporations, and we've seen the perfect storm of inequality. Wage and welfare cuts for the many, tax cuts and asset accumulation for the already wealthy few, the production of a society containing grotesque levels of inequality, differences in life expectancy in districts less than a few miles apart, differences of up to 20 years. And last year, what I found extremely shocking was 700 of our fellow citizens, homeless, died on our streets last year. And Ralph's reference to despair I think can best be translated into the mental health crisis that is experienced in recent years by our society. It's resulted in record levels, record instance levels of suicides, particularly among young men in our society. So I think all these facts do uphold Ralph Miliband's depiction of the abysmal failure of our economic system to provide for the many. But the question is, is this of, is this of, well, is all this of any political relevance whatsoever? All these issues were present last December, and yet people still voted to give Boris Johnson an 80-seat Conservative majority. I think there are several arguments we can draw upon in response to that, and they go to the heart of why Labour lost in 2019 but I think more importantly, the potential that there is now for a Labour government being elected. There is in politics and history such a thing as contingency. Macmillan's famous expression to explain the reason for certain political outcomes of events, dear boy, events. Well, Brexit was our contingency in 2019. Our events, dear boy, events. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean one should exclude other factors or excuse weaknesses and mistakes for our electoral failure. The failure to develop and adhere to and repeatedly broadcast an overall narrative for our project beyond the anti-austerity of that narrative that successfully held sway up until 2017. The constant almost daily distraction from within our own party of internal plots, splits, desertions and coups. And despite the recruitment of a mass movement, 
allowing the project to become centralized and bureaucratized. Yeah, also failing to be ruthless enough in closing down grounds for attack and rooting out incompetence or even malevolence. I'll go to my grave agonizing over those questions. But, you know, whatever, whatever factors or failures there were, the impossibility of overcoming the party's Brexit dilemma was actually the killer blow. The impossibility of managing the impasse created by having a party comprising a significant majority of its members opposed to Brexit, but with so many of its MPs and candidates dependent on electoral success in Brexit-supporting constituencies. I have to say also, so you're aware, plus part of this was our dependency on maintaining a cross-party coalition of support for any parliamentary strategy. That also meant we ran out of road eventually, any room to manoeuvre. We lost that room to manoeuvre once the SNP and the Lib Dems under the tutelage of a former comrade, Chakaramuna, when they jumped ship. But for all this, let's be clear about it, for all this, if you're in a leadership position, you accept responsibility. And I have. You take it on the chin, but also you move on to the next fight. And the next fight will almost certainly be fought on a dramatically different terrain. The pandemic has the potential to transform the political agenda. There is no inevitability that the experience of the pandemic will automatically benefit the left, as some have assumed. Indeed, far from it. If the predicted recession hits as hard as some predict, as the furlough scheme and the other support schemes are withdrawn and unemployment rises, well, we could have the perfect breeding ground for right-wing demagogues. I don't say this lightly, but last weekend we witnessed just how a series of tweets from Boris Johnson could call up and mobilise the far right in this country. And I warn you, I warn you, do not underestimate the ruthlessness and the recklessness of the operation of the Johnson Cummings regime. No risk to the well-being of our people will be too great to them to hold on to power. But there are early signs of an alternative scenario emerging, and it's one which I believe imbues Ralph Miliband's work with such relevance. I've been involved in a, a listening project of recent months, facilitated by the political author, Christine Berry. It's a series of discussions bringing together people from different walks of life to discuss the impact of the pandemic, particularly on people's values, their view of the world. And also I've naturally been talking and observing constituents. I've been talking to constituents and observing what's happening within my own constituency. I've listened to the commentary on the social media, the mainstream media, and in the huge number of Zoom meetings and events. It shouldn't be exaggerated, but neither should it be underestimated how an experience like the pandemic can exert, how much an experience like this can exert on people's attitudes. 
It can, and I think, I believe it has, to a certain extent, provoked a reassessment. <clears throat> Excuse me, for, for some, a quite a profound reassessment of what we value in our lives and in our community. The economic impact of the pandemic is already influencing people's expectations for the future. Views on the organization of our society, the operation of the economy, expectations of the role of government. I think they're all being, at the moment, tentatively being reshaped. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and I think a societal shock like this does prompt people to consider what matters to them. And the enforced lockdown actually has provided for many the time and opportunity to do this. What appears to be coming through is, of course, a natural, a natural increase in feelings of vulnerability and insecurity. Faced with the risk of threat to jobs and high levels of unemployment, and for some, their, for some, their first experience of the low levels of social security support, it's understandable that there's a search for greater security. I think with so many becoming aware of the need for health or social care, there's also a naturally, an natural enhanced appreciation of the caring services any community needs. And actually an appreciation of the true, true value of all those who provide the treatment and the care at every level of oper the operation. And there's undoubtedly been a sense of a lack of control and accountability over decisions being made distantly over critical issues like the return to work or the opening up of our schools. I think there's a, a greater acknowledgement of the vital role, obviously, of the state and public services. Public, the state in all its forms, from the NHS to the council, to carers, the police and other emergency services. We've all, been, we've all been heartened by the visible expressions of solidarity as well and collective action, whether it's the clapping for the NHS or the young people turning out in their thousands to march in Black Lives Matter demonstrations. Levels of solidarity which have surprised some within our society. The culture of possessive individualism that's been rammed down people's throats for so much of the last four decades, for the first time in a long time, is being challenged at scale by a genuine sense of collective altruism. There's, an under, there's a completely understandable desire to get back to normal life. <clears throat> I believe people want a new normal. They don't want to return to a normal that created a society with its public services so ill-prepared for the pandemic and with families so lacking in financial resilience that they were immediately threatened with economic hardship when the pandemic began to hit. I believe the, the political movement that captures that mood will be the one which has the chance to secure the support that will enable them to govern and actually command the future. To do so, if we have to learn any lessons from failures in 2019 in particular, to do so it must embody a narrative that offers this reassurance and security that people wish for after this devastating crisis. But that narrative, I think, also 
has to reflect people's underlying, in many instances, determination not to go back to the old normal. And it must uh, appreciate, I think, the growing feeling that things must change and they must change for the better. And there's been already a number of, of groups and individuals who I think have been really working creatively and they're talking about the future we could aspire to under the rubric, build back better. It's the, it's the determined assertion that we must and will actually reshape the future. So I think much of that discussion has been so far in the spirit of the penultimate chapter in Ralph Miliband's last book. This chapter is entitled Constituencies, Agencies and Strategies. It, it, it engages in the creation of ideas and demands for change that can forge alliances and supportive constituencies to mobilize a majority for a step-by-step yeah, -step step for eventual radical transformative change. In one of my favorite books, in, it's the book by R.H. Tawney, The Attack. In his book, The Attack, R.H. Tawney, who I, I always like, Beatrice Webb described as a socialist saint, but anyway, Tawney argued that to win elections and to secure radical change in government, Labour must not just present a program of what he described as Christmas trees or carrots for donkeys. Does this sound familiar? His argument was that socialism is not so much a program, but a motivating creed. I think we would replace the term creed with narrative. And it's exactly the difference in the campaigning approaches between 2017 and 2019. I've often cited Tory on this in the past, but also cautioned that yes, thrust has to be a creed, a narrative, but it also still does need to be substantiated with a basic program for action that concretely but persuasively demonstrates the ability to secure change. For those of us on the left and progressives, I think our task now, therefore, is yes, to present a coherent narrative for change, but also to reinforce that with at least the basics of a coherent alternative economic strategy. In recent speeches, I've tried to sketch out what could be the contents of that new alternative economic strategy. I'll go through it quickly. First, no return to austerity. There could be no return to austerity. There have been some warning signs of the Tories testing the water on the public reaction to arguments for a, a new round of austerity, wage controls in particular, wage freezes. <clears throat> but actually more astute Tory tacticians understand and fear the reaction of an electorate worn down by a decade austerity. And I think they will back continuing fiscal stimulus, but only as long as the bulk of the benefits of that stimulus flow towards restoring profits, not wages, and to management incomes and sh to shareholders in dividends and not to workers. It's interesting. We've now entered the period where we now have conservative Keynesians, but Keynesians with a selfish purpose. That's why I think the second element of the program is not just a rejection of austerity, it's also about tapping insecurity. And that's why the benefits of any economic recovery secured by large scale fiscal support must be distributed radically more fairly 
to eradicate financial insecurity for everybody. I think there are two steps that could go some way to eradicate this insecurity. And a number of us have been arguing in the recent period about how they could be implemented. The first is the introduction of a minimum earnings guarantee set at a level that will allow for a decent standard of living, whether in work or for those unable to work. There are a number who have been campaigning for a universal basic income, and I support. But we have to admit that that argument has yet to be won, but maybe the first step in treading down that path would be the introduction of a minimum earnings guarantee that I think would set a standard to lift people out of poverty or own, but give them security. But the second step in is tackling the insecurity at work, uh, the insecurity that many now feel, and particularly as we've seen when people have been forced back to work, often where they're concerned about the impact it would have on their health, but also where we've seen some, I think, abuses of the furloughing scheme as well. And the way to overcome that insecurity is the installation of trade union rights that can end exploitation and give workers a real say in their workplace. I don't think seeking a voice and basic security at work is, isn't an awful lot to ask for. I think what I've experienced in my constituency, well, the unscrupulous behaviour of companies like British Airways and P&O Ferries, I fear... Um, are likely to be followed by others as government support is reduced. They starkly exemplify the need for basic trade union rights as some companies use the, well, use this crisis as an excuse to undermine workers' wages and conditions, not just temporarily to deal with the crisis, but permanently. The third element, I think, is fair taxation. The crisis has demonstrated that when needed, governments can find the resources. It's confirmed what we've been saying for over a decade, that austerity was always a political choice, not an economic necessity. We're moving towards a sort of rebalancing of the economy after witnessing how the rich and corporations benefited from the last economic crash, I doubt if the bulk of people will tolerate either austerity or tax increases. That's why the demand for a fair taxation must be central, I think, to any recovery agenda. And alongside measures to crack down on tax evasion and tax avoidance, fair taxes would mean not just increasing taxation on the highest earners, the top 5%, but also fairly taxing wealth, treating, for example, treating capital gains the same as income and scrapping some of the spurious tax reliefs like the entrepreneur's allowance identified now by a whole range of economists as well as think tanks as something that has to go. The fourth is about element of a program I've suggested is about universal basic services. I think the pandemic has reminded people that we depend on many basic services that are so important to the quality of our lives, they should not be treated like commodities to be bought and sold, but they should be provided universally. Never again will governments get away with underfunding the NHS. And now there's the call for the establishment of a national care service, which has become self-evident as a result of the experience of the pandemic. Even this Tory government has actually been forced to uh, effectively nationalise our railways and fund our bus, bus routes through taxation just to survive. So the question that's being asked is why only in terms of crisis? 
bringing them both into an integrated service could be the first step in public transport becoming a universal service, eventually provided free to all as part of the drive to tackle climate change and secure, secure sustainability. And you'll have to forgive me, but I can't resist mentioning the provision of full fibre broadband. Um, some may remember I, it was described as full fibre Marxism when I launched the idea of internet connectivity as a universal basic service last November. I think many now, many people now appreciate that in the 21st century, connectivity has become essential to our way of life. So public ownership of these basic universal services ensures that people have access to key services and that the more services that are no longer treated as commodities, the greater the opportunity is for overcoming the grotesque levels of inequality within our societies. Exactly the strategy argued for by Ralph Miliband, particularly in his last book. Let me just make this other point as well. I think we need to treat the tackling of the pandemic crisis as just a dress rehearsal for how we tackle the crisis of the existential threat of climate change. Now is the time to explain that the only way we will exceed is by applying the lessons we've learned in this crisis, the essential value of solidarity that Collective action has to be at the core of any strategy that will be successful in tackling climate change. The key role of the democratic state, investing fast and big, harnessing a fair system of resourcing to support public services that will be essential to sustainability in the future. I think there's no shortage of ideas or creativity about on what we need to do to prevent the looming climate catastrophe. Indeed, another Miliband, Ed Miliband, is at the forefront, I think, brilliantly articulating these ideas in the Green New Deal and the Green Industrial Revolution. So I think the pandemic is creating a, a new climate of opinion. Along with the threat of a climate crisis has the potential to create a new political agenda. Whether it's exploited by the right to bolster some form of crisis capitalism, or whether those of us on the left can channel a, a movement for progressive change, the creation of a people's agenda to reshape our future, well, all that is in our hands. I choose, and I hope that you will choose, to be amongst those that Ralph Miliband described in the last sentences of his last work. He wrote this. In all our countries, there are people in numbers large or small who are moved by the vision of a new social order in which democracy, egalitarianism and cooperation, the essential values of socialism, would be the prevailing principles of social organisation. It's in the growth of their numbers and in the success of their struggles that lies the best hope for humankind. Agreed. Thank you very much in solidarity. Well, thank you very much indeed. I'll, I'll have to uh, verbalize the clapping that we would normally have at this point, but there's a, a huge audience um, and I dare say the claps can be heard in a number of different countries in a number of different time zones. Um, what we would normally do now and what we are going to do is to proceed to questions. 
Um, I can see a really large number of questions here, and needless to say, um, we cannot possibly address them all, but we're going to try and pick out some on a range of different issues from different uh, people. And I'm going to suggest two to you, first of all, John, and um, there, there's so many, if, if we could keep the answers reasonably brief, we can get through more of them. So first of all, um, we have here um, from, uh, um, from Nelson, um, the question is, do we need more political education during schooling to enable people to understand the underlying concepts and ideologies behind political parties? And a second question, slightly different from Darren Hughes in London, um, what about the first past the post system? Uh, why didn't the Corbyn project embrace proportional representation? On the second question, on, on PR, um, I support proportional representation. I couldn't win the argument, haven't won the argument yet. I think, I think we will eventually. Um, there's proportional systems operation within our political system at the moment. Um, but I, I, why, didn't it get, why didn't we win the argument before? Um, it might well be, uh, and I think this was a mistake, it might well be that um, it wasn't seen as a particular priority. I spoke on a number of platforms at Labour Party Conference and elsewhere, working with members of my team, Johnny Reynolds and people like that. Um, and I think if you, my calculation at the moment in terms of proportional representation, overall support in the party would be about 30 or 40%, so quite close. So one of my arguments was, is can we insert PR again into another level of um, our policy steps? So for example, um, we have a policy which is overwhelmingly supported, that will abolish the House of Lords. Um, I'm now convinced that you do need a second chamber, but why don't we have that as a second chamber based on proportional representation? And that would enable us also to have um, uh, a ch uh, an amending chamber that could, for example, have much better representation um, from regions and the nations of the UK. So I think tactically, our next step is to argue for something like that. On that basis, then you just, people then get reassured about the operation of proportional representation, and eventually they'll be able to leap into that for the election of the Commons and the government. Now, I just, I work on that on the basis of a, as a, as a tactic, as part of a strategy. Um, I've been, at, a few people have had a pop at me over that saying, why are you stepping backwards? I'm not. I just think we need to move it forward step by step in that way. And I think we could win on that one fairly easily. Um, but I agree with you. I, I just think the PR system that um, we want to develop, my view is a PR system that has a linkage to constituencies, is the best form, that's readily available to us, and we should get on with it. Let's have that debate. Uh, it may well be with a, a new leadership. I'm not sure what Keir's view on PR is, but with a new, new leadership, let's open that debate up again. It gives us a fresh pair of legs to, to do that. In terms of political education, I agree. Um, I tell you, and it needs to be, maybe you don't even call it politics, look at what's happened on Black Lives Matter. One of the main demands of that fanta this fantastic movement that's emerged is, the well, what sort of history are we teaching at the moment? And it is a challenge to the teaching of history in our schools and colleges, etc., um, from well, people who've been denied a voice, but also, almost, well, often written out of history. So I think there's a real opening up now to have a debate about what future curriculums would look like. I'd like to see much more political debate, discussion taking place. Some of it does in a number of my local schools, it does, and I, I visit quite a bit. Um, but yeah, you're right, it needs more. Can I just say also, 
Um, we need more social movements that are involved in, in political history as well. One of the groups that I'm involved in is the World Transformed. They um, effectively operate within the Labour Party and beyond, and they introduce elements of political education in a, in a way which is amazingly creative. And I think it's one of the, big, the biggest and freshest initiative that we've done on political education for a long time. The Labour Party almost gave up on political education for a long period. I, I couldn't understand why. Uh, and the others have got conspiracy theories around that. I think, it was, again, people didn't realise just what an important, significant role it is. And it's not just about training of cadres into how, how to get the vote out. It's how to convince people about the nature of the change that you want to bring about. Okay, thanks very much. So another two questions here. The first is from Nihar in Oxford. And it's to ask you, do you feel the government's schemes to protect the economy and jobs from COVID have been sufficient? And if not, what should they be doing? That's the first one. And then from Sasha, an A-level student in London, um, what do you uh, think about the change in the leader to the Labour Party? Um, Keir Starmer has shown himself to be a powerful leader during the pandemic. And there was a deal of dispute about Jeremy Corbyn in the party before. Okay, in terms of the, um, the government support schemes, um, before I left the Shadow Chancellor, we submitted a um, series of papers to the government about the way forward. So, for example, the furlough scheme is what we put forward, but it wasn't a furlough scheme where you cut people's wages by 20%. It was 100% support, but with 80% um, from the government, 20% from the companies themselves. We also argued that where there was any support being provided by the government, it should be a, there should be an element of conditionality. So, for example, I, I used the example of British Airways who are taking money from the government on furloughing, and what are they doing? They're sacking 12,000 workers and making 12,000 redundant and then laying off the rest of their workforce, dismissing them, and then trying to re-employ them on lower wages and worse conditions. And our concern was that well, unless you introduce some element of conditionality, what will happen is the companies will take the money and run and at the end of the day will not protect their overall operation or the workers themselves. In addition to that, I have to say we were pointing out, and these Dodds, my successor, Shadow Charles, have done an excellent job as well. We've pointed out then and have consistently done the huge gaps that there were in the scheme, particularly around self-employed, and particularly about those working in the gig economy, limb B workers, as they were identified. When we raised this in Parliament, um, Rishi Sunak, I don't think he even understood what they were. That's how bad it was at the beginning. So there's a whole series of gaps, I think. The issue as well is if we said to the government too, is if you're putting in large amounts of money to support these companies, um, there will come a time where you're going to ask these companies, what do you get back in return? So we were arguing that you should, if necessary, take equity stakes in those companies so that the taxpayers who invested their money in saving these companies should get a stable, longer return for that. I actually think now um, the fear I've got is that under pressure um, from the Treasury itself and elsewhere, but also because of the nature of their politics, they'll start withdrawing the furlough scheme too soon. And we'll see companies now moving to make people redundant rather than can keep them in work. And that's my biggest fear. And as I say, there are some companies, I cite British Airways and P&O Ferries as just two examples, who are using this crisis not, as I say, to temporarily deal with problems, but to how develop and implement their long-term strategy of cutting wages and undermining working conditions. 
So I think that we need government now, if necessary, to intervene. And I just give the example of British Airways, because we've, we've been raising it in Parliament, where they're behaving in this way, which is taking money from the UK government, sacking UK workers, but at the same time, through their um, corporate group, the IAG, buying up other airlines as part of this sort of Darwinian law of the jungle, who will survive the longest. Well, they're where there are. There's other ways that can, you can influence this company. So, for example, denying them the slots that they have that dominate Heathrow for their long term. So, again, government needs to be more interventionist, more supportive. And actually, the role, the role of the state enabling ownership to take place is important. The other issue, this is the ideal time now to ensure that people have proper trade union rights at work. And alongside those trade union rights, representation on the boards of those companies where they work. So there's a democratic discussion and debate and uh, the long-term interests of those individual firms and also therefore as a result of that, the benefit of the community overall. In terms of um, uh, Kia and his, his performance, um, Kia's a friend, um, we've worked together over the years. Um, you've seen what he can do at Prime Minister's questions. He takes Johnson apart. Um, they always use the word forensic about Kia. Well, there has been forensic actually. Uh, and yesterday, in Prime Minister's question, Johnson did his usual bluster, um, and I think, I think has become. I, I don't want to be too polite, but he has become an embarrassment of a prime minister. I don't think we've seen anything so poor as this in terms of just being on top of the job, uh, and just it isn't just that he hasn't got an eye for detail. He doesn't seem to understand uh, an, an overall strategic approach as well. So Keir, I think, is taking him apart on that basis. What we've got to do now is as a movement as a whole, is be out there making sure we're campaigning to expose what the Tories have done, but then also developing our narrative and our also alternative political programme that demonstrates that we can go into government, tackle the problems that people are facing. And I'm confident we can do that. I think um, the teams that have been put in place, um, I think that actually if you look in every field, take I, I mentioned Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband was the first person in, in government in this country that raised the issue of climate change. He led on it. He, as a Minister under the new Labour administrations, he, he led on it. And that, again, the, the team is at least does my successor, incredibly bright, hardworking, but really knows her stuff. Was one of, the, one of my, in that, my ministerial team, someone I could always rely upon. Again, right the way across the piece, there's a, unknown heroes, unsung heroes here. Becky Long Bailey, in terms of what she's doing in education, Andy MacDonald, who's in terms of developing employment rights. All of this is an incredibly creative team. I think. We've got a potential of a fantastic team going to government. We'll see what happens with regard to Keir and the media. Um, there hasn't been a Labour um, leader that they haven't, the, the establishment media haven't uh, tried to savage. Um, hopefully we've learned some lessons from the last five years. But um, again, part of that is how can you operate professionally to resolve that? Don't lead with your chin, that sort of stuff. But also... It is about making sure that the one advantage that we've got, the Tories will never have, is a mass movement. We've got to make sure we maintain the 500,000 members we've got and we've got to grow it as well. And I think Keir's aware of that. Thank you. So two more questions now. Uh, the first is from uh, Scott, uh, an alumnus from the University of Lincoln. And he asks, it rather follows on from what you were just saying, how do we reinvent the media to enable a more independent message to get to a wider population? And the second question comes from Jim Aleo Arnabat, another an LSE alumnus, um, who asks, 
Should the left in the UK compromise their ideals to sustain a government, i.e. should they uh, pursue a proper socialist government or accept that we live in a right-wing country and have to settle for something less? Okay. Look, let's be clear. The media, let's, you know, almost feel like saying don't get me going. Um, look, the issue on the media is... The bulk of the mainstream media, in terms of the written press, the press, are owned by political opponents. Full stop. That, you, know, you just have to accept that. That's the reality. Um, the Guardian is um, sort of liberal, supportive, can be. It wasn't supportive of um, myself and Jeremy Corbyn. We occasionally we'd get the, the occasional article. But the bulk of their, if you look at the, we did analysis, if you look at the bulk of their comment pages, usually in opposition, but, you know, that's the reality it is, because um, I think the establishment to a certain, I think the Guardian to a certain extent to, to a bit of the, an element of the establishment too. So that, that's the reality. You just have to deal with it. You try to ensure, first of all, you have to be realistic. You have to be professional in relationship to the mainstream media. So in relation to the press, um, try and ensure that, first of all, you, that you know hostages to fortune. That's tough. Make sure you rebut um, fast as many as the distortions that are put out and the stories that are put out. And literally every hour, every hour for five years nearly, we were in terms of having to rebut stories that were pure inventions. I do, I do the thing about, um, you know, the joke about the KGB, but, you know, that went round the world. It was extraordinary, really. So you just rebut all your possibilities. So, yes, you have to be professional at the mainstream media. The problem that we've got, so with the mainstream media in terms of broadcast, again, the strategy, do as much live as you possibly can. Because at least live, you might be able to get your message across without it being edited. Only later will they edit it and you've got a real risk of distortion. So we try to use live media as much as we possibly can. And half of my life was spent getting up at half past five in the morning and doing news rounds nine or ten different stations and then doing regional media as well on the radio and appearing on Peston and Ma and Ridge. People must have got bored stiff of the after a bit, to be honest, but that live broadcast is, is key on all that. And the reason for that, actually, is the broadcast media, particularly the BBC now because of the cuts in the, the staff that they've had, often what they'll naturally do is they'll take a story from what's happening within the press, and that's completely understandable because the, the cuts that have taken place, particularly amongst their, the news journalists and researchers, et cetera, has meant that it's difficult for them to investigate independent stories themselves. So that's how you do that. The second thing is, yeah, you've got to use social media. We never had it before. Uh, and in, up until, I think, in Jeremy's leadership election and into 2017, we were well ahead of the game. We were well ahead of the game because we had a group of young people around us who just knew their school. And they were brilliant, creative, et cetera. And they drew in almost a, from all different aspects of a cultural campaign that was waged. We lost the edge in 2019 for a number of reasons, partly because I think we were dogged down by just trying to survive day by day what was going on, particularly with regard to internal attacks from the part, in, within the party, but also because the Conservatives have sold what we did in 2017 with social media, and they piled money into social media. Look at this spend. And I thought what was interesting in the post-match post analysis after the election, I don't know where you saw it, that piece of research that, that said that how much they spent, but also how 80% of everything they put out was totally inaccurate. 
<laughs> but it didn't matter. They flooded Facebook and all that. Final point is, is we've got to be sharper on social media. We can do that, be more creative. And, I, and that's what's happening now. But the, the other element of it is recognize um, actually what, as I say, what we've got that they haven't got by way of communication, which is a mass movement. Every one of those individual Labour Party members should be an advocate for the policies we want to do, for the analysis of our society and how we can bring about change. And that's what the Tories have never had. So the, the mobilisation of a mass movement like that, I think, is absolutely key. We've got, the Labour Party's got to become what we always aspire to, which is a huge social movement. And if you don't think that matters, look what happened over Black Lives Matter. A social movement emerged from almost from nowhere but has changed, I think, the whole debate around that key issue and is, is actually changing policy and practice as well. And it's given confidence to others. So there, the, I think that's the way that you, you, overcome, um, you overcome what is a, a natural antipathy in the media. And that isn't me being paranoid or, or calling foul or anything like that. That's the reality of a capitalist system. Those who have the wealth own the media. And the last thing they want is the election of a Labour government that is going to take just a little bit of their wealth away from them and their power away from them and give it to um, give it to people. Anyway, it's all I have to say, you know, sometimes in politics, you look at as a political artisan and you think, you know, there's a good piece of work done that in terms of um, the social media is a good piece of work that we did. Well, we need to up the game now for the next election on this issue about um, um, left compromise socialist practices. I think, look, what you have to do is explain to people how you understand the world um, and the sort of changes that need to be brought about and the ambition and vision that you have. And you work your way through the steps towards that. And the issue is, at what pace do you go? And also, really, I suppose the key element of all of that is being completely honest and truthful to people. And I think at times what happens is, is that as soon as you start compromising, people can see through a fraud. Uh, they can see actually that isn't what you're really about. So sometimes it is worth planting a flag and sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. I'll just give the, exa you know, the example of the last election. We put a whole range of policies forward in the last election, all of which individually were incredibly popular. Our failure was to develop an overall narrative that convinced people um, of how that all knitted together. And I think that's some of the lessons that have been, been learned from that. Um, so it's not a matter of compromise. It's a matter of being absolutely clear on what you're about, what your analysis is, and how you can persuade people how you get there and give them, give them confidence. And that will happen. I'll give you, just give you one example. Sorry, Rob, for I'm going on, but I'll just give you one example. Uh, we, we campaigned for years about the number of people sleeping on our streets. And, you know, uh, Gordon Brown really worked hard on lifting children out of poverty and tackling homelessness, etc. And, and under New Labour, actually, they were getting there. They were overcoming some of these problems. And then the Tories come in 2010, brutal policies of austerity. And you see the, you see the number of um, people sleeping on the streets at least double or double and a half at one point. And as I say, last year, 700 people died in our streets. The, the pandemic comes across and all of a sudden the resources are found to take all those off the street and put the, give them a decent roof over their heads. Those people are now being kicked out again and put on the streets. That's the sort of way in which we said, actually, this is wrong. This is how you can go about it. This is what our opponents will do if we don't change. And then you convince people to that change. Thanks very much. Um, 
I'll just move on. Um, so another two questions. First, Pauline from Newton Abbott in Devon asks about uh, universal basic income. And she says there's an argument about whether we need that universal basic income or a job guarantee. The universal basic income could just be a subsidy to employers paying low wages. How can that problem be avoided? And the second one, uh, Usman Ali, a postgraduate political sociology student here at the LSE, says it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on how the Labor Party can further appeal and relate to ethnic minority communities across the UK. Okay. All right, on the UBI issue, um, the whole concept of UBI is that you know, it provides a level of income to everybody uh, without means test so that you lift people out of poverty and you give them freedom. Uh, and there's a, a freedom from what we have at the moment is levels of insecurity that are causing a mental health crisis, to be honest. Um, I think it's, it's one route. And that's why in the last Labour Manifesto, um, working with Guy Standing, who's the, the sort of global expert on all of this, we decided what we'd do is look at a couple of pilots here uh, operated. And I wasn't sure whether anyone would be interested in running a pilot, but the, um, we had a number of cities like Liverpool and Sheffield and elsewhere. And in Scotland, um, the SNP were interested in this as well. So the idea was, well, let's look, run a pilot and see how that impacts upon people's lives individually, but also the community overall. And we've looked at the pilots that have happened elsewhere, and some have, have given people the security, some have, interestingly enough, they, it's not, as some would argue, disincentive to work either, quite the reverse. I think it gives more people the security to develop on their skills and talents to enable them to be um, more engaged in the economy overall. So that, that is one route, but there are other routes, and that's why uh, minimum earnings guarantee is, is one element, but also um, Having a jobs guarantee is something that is being discussed at the moment. So a combination of guarantee everyone a job, but also at a level of income and earnings that will ensure they can have a decent quality of life is, is I think, one route through all of this, too. Um, the, the other, I suppose, the, the other issue then that comes up is this argument always that's been put forward about, um, well, it will, go, it, will, it will go to the rich as well. We had this argument, some people remember, if they're old enough like me, about when we introduced the campaign for child benefit. Well, that's true, it will, but they're all members of society, so they all deserve, they all pay their taxes. And actually, the wider the number of the people that get the, the benefit, all strata within our society, the greater the level of protection there is and the security of that benefit for, for the long term. I also remind people as well that on means-tested benefits as well, I think the last calculation was that they're 12 times more costly to administer than one that is universal. So I, what we'll see in this coming period is the debate around all those different options, job guarantee, minimum earnings guarantee, and UBI. Um, as I say, I, I favor UBI because it's so simple and get it out there, but let's see, I, I'm, I wanted to see where those pilots operate. So. In the Labour Party debate, it will see how that how that goes. Um, as I say, certainly, um, as I say, Johnny Reynolds from my old team in the Treasury team, he's now um, Secretary of State for Department of Wel Welfare Benefits, and he's a, a UBI advocate in the past. On this issue about um, the ethnic minority community, the Bain community, and the Labour Party, um, the the issue, I think, for the Labour Party, whatever community is, is to be relevant, 
and accessible and participatory. Um, and in many areas of of our communities now, if you look at the Labour Party, they've look in terms of what they looked like a number of years ago. The Labour Party is in, increasingly, because we've got a mass membership, really rooted within our communities. And that's feeding through in representation as well. And if you look at representation at every level, whether it's councillors or whether it's in Parliament itself, I'm, I'm, I think the progress has been pretty good. And the, uh, the, young, the young MPs that came in in 2019, you know, we're celebrating Diane Abbott's 33rd year in Parliament and what a struggle that was to, to get black representation in at that stage. But now we've got people like um, Bell and Nadia and Zara and a whole range of individual MPs that have come in, the next generation, and they're terrific. And they they don't put up with anything either. And they're challenging issues around how the BAME community is treated and the disrespect that there is for BAME community <laughs> views on a number of issues. So I think it's moving on dramatically. And the only way that will ensure that the party represent any group within society is to make sure the party contains that group, contains representatives in those different communities. And I think that is happening. It's never always enough, and uh, but we, I think it is moving. And I think there's a, I think Keo and others recognise that all, all the way through. And you'll see, I think in this coming period, particularly, um, there'll be a range of campaigns that will focus on this issue of tackling inequality within our society. And if you look at who's hit by inequality, it is the BAME community in particular. And we've seen that with the, the tragedies of the deaths with regard to the, the coronavirus pandemic. And that relates, I think, to the, well, the levels of inequality within our society that is endured by the BAME community. And also, uh, the other issue that is coming up, when you go th into a recession as it's likely to happen now and there's high levels of unemployment um, you'll see what comes out very very starkly is the discrimination that there is in the um, labor market and we already have it if you look at the bangladeshi community something like the levels of 20 percent unemployment in some community bangladeshi communities it's horrendous and they'll be the hardest hit as we go into a recession as well so what we've got to do is make sure that the labor party is representing those views that are coming out from those hardest hit communities. Finally, let me just say this, this is now one of my fears of this coming period. And I mentioned it in my lecture. Um, when you go into recessions like this, it's so easy for the right to seize upon uh, a scapegoat. Um, and I think we will see, and we begin to see um, the rise of racism um, from the far right. And I think that's what we've got, got to guard against that. So that gives another responsibility on the shoulders of every Labour Party member now to make sure that we are engaged with the bank community. We are part, they are members of the bank community are part of our movement, but also we're following their lead in making sure we're defending ourselves, all of everybody against what might come from the far right. And we saw some of that the weekend. Thanks very much. So look, I'll press on with two questions. The first comes from uh, from Australia. Angela, an actor who also writes on economic issues, asks, is there any interest in the Labour Party in the ideas of Henry George, uh, especially his 
land yeah. value tax. Value tax yeah. and I'm, I'm not sure if I should parenthetically uh, comment that this is a 19th century author who had a particular idea about um, the importance of taxes on the unearned increment of the value of land. That's just me adding that in. The second uh, question is from Mona in Hong Kong, who asks, how far do you think recent events will uh, sway voters, especially swing voters, towards Labor and away from the Conservatives? It's obviously a large question. You've addressed that in part, but if you could just address it in a sort of electoral sense, maybe. Yeah. On the, on the Henry George, uh, we have a Labor land value tax campaign. Um, and the, the, the woman who has um, been one of my advisors in, in recent years is a woman called Heather Wetzel, who's part of that land value taxation campaign. And if you look at la the Labour manifestos, um, we refer to the introduction of LVT, uh, the exploration of the in introduction of LVT. Um, and the reason I inter was interested and, and still am is because we've got a crisis in local government funding, that's the first thing. Um, the tax base for local government has been eroded over the years. Um, as a result of the erosion of the independence of local government decision-making too. And so we need to establish uh, a new tax base and land value taxation could enable that to happen. And it's on this simple, and, and Henry George's works are actually reasonably well known in, in, in the Labour Party now because of the land value taxation campaign. But if you, I just give the example, and I always try to uh, relate things to my own constituency. We've now got um, Crossrail going through my constituency. Um, huge amount of investment, public investment that's gone in there. Land value now is going through the roof. Um, and the, the what's happening on land around the route of Crossrail as it goes through my constituency is that that land is being converted from industrial use into housing. And a lot of that housing is now owned by, um, by landlords, often overseas companies as well. And they don't even have to let the premises because the value will still go up anyway. And um, we get no benefit from that um, because local people can't afford the, the, the properties largely. Um, they're, they're built for speculation and the value either in rent or in the value of the property itself on on sale, there's no benefit to the local community, despite the local community being taxpayers as well who paid for that, the development of Crossrail, the investment in Crossrail. So land value would enable us to gain some element of value that we could use, for example, to build the public housing that we need, or we could use for it to fund our local public services that we desperately need as well. So I'm, I'm quite convinced that land value taxation is a runner, and I think we can win the argument on it. Uh, we, when we put it in the manifesto in 2017, um, this is a good example of the conservative media ownership. Um, they ran a campaign in the last week of the general election campaign that we were going to tax people's gardens. So they named it the garden tax, even though we'd actually said at that stage um, in that election campaign that this was not on residential properties at all. Um, but that shows you how that could, uh, they could run that campaign. We closed, I think, a lot of that vulnerability down uh, uh, up until the 2019 election, but we still adhere to the view that we wanted to, to move forward on land value taxation. I think it's an argument whose time has come. I think the pressure, interestingly enough, on local government services and funding of local government uh, reopens the whole debate around taxation generally. And I think that gives us the opportunity then 
of winning the issue about land value taxation. So as an aside as well, if people are interested, uh, we also, we set up a working group under George Monbiot, the environmentalist, and they did a piece of work on land overall, land ownership, and how land could be more effectively utilized within local communities and overall, particularly with regard to environmental sustainability. I think it was an excellent piece of work, which hasn't really seen enough light of day. Um, and again, it's something that I'm hoping the Labour will revisit. Uh, but it, the shock of, of who owns what in terms of land in this country, uh, I think is absolutely startling. It's an issue um, that has been more effectively campaigned on in Scotland um, because the land is largely owned by companies and others um, who are not based in Scotland. So you can understand their anxiety there. But in areas um, across England as well, the land ownership issue, I think, needs much more exposure. And not only just about the ownership of that land, but the lack of using it for any form of productive use. Uh, and in some instances for obtaining quite significant tax subsidies and reliefs as, as well. Um, the, the, uh, the second question with regard to how things are, uh, are things changed now, is it more propitious, for example, for Labour as we go into a future general election? Um, as I said in my lecture, I think the pandemic has tragically, tragically, has changed some element of the political climate and people's views, the climate of opinion. Uh, tragically, um, as a result of some of the experiences that families have had because of illness and deaths, also because of the, um, the, the loss of jobs and the insecurity that's developed, and also um, people's understanding of the dependence of ourselves on each other collectively, but also on our public services. Um, the Tories did this phony um, campaign around uh, big society and this argument, we're all in it together. They were using expressions from the Second World War. Well, I think this pandemic has proved that actually we are all in it together because this pandemic doesn't respect borders or, or in many ways classes, except we know it hits the poorest hardest. So I think there's a real, there is a change in the political climate, but there's no there's no automatic right that this or automatic event or natural succession that this will mean that people vote for Labour or it goes to the left. I think there's just an equal danger it can go to the right. Uh, and that's what we saw in the 1980s when the economic um, boom, post-war boom ended and we went into economic crisis. People turned to the right, not to the left. And we had a decade and a bit of, of conservative governments that introduced uh, monetarists that when led into neoliberal policies that impacted upon working class communities in a way which I think was absolutely brutal. And I think there's the potential of that now if we're not careful. My view, what we should be doing is making sure that we're people know we're on their side, that we understand their concerns and insecurities, that we we can develop and reshape reshape our society. And here's a number of the ideas and programs that that we can do that with. And I actually think also, once we get through this first stage of the pandemic, I have to say, we do need an inquiry about how this government has behaved. And I do think at the end of that inquiry, we may well, but should be demanding a general election because the incompetence, the, the I think almost the disregard by this government for 
um, the, the community overall, I think they should be held to account. Thanks very much. Um, we've got time, I think, for a couple more questions. Let's, let's see how we go if there's another round. Um, so David, um, a sixth form student from London, says that currently the UK is accumulating large levels of debt as a result of the conservative attempt to maintain the economy during the COVID pandemic. If Labor were in a position of power, um, how would it be able to fund its progressive policies? And would this be achievable without massively increasing national debt? So that's question one, the pandemic and the debt problem it may produce. Question two is Charlie Mansell, a visitor to the LSE. Um, he, he writes that in 2018, the Labor Democracy Review focused on issues such as changing PLP composition and barriers to entry to the leadership election would it have been better to focus on broader democratisation and member involvement instead? Yeah, on the, let's go through the debt issue. The reality is this. Um, we had inevitably to borrow more to see us through this pandemic and we'll have to as, and maintain that as well. And the way that you overcome issues around debt, you, know, you need to, obviously, uh, there is... A concern about the relationship between um, the ratio between debt to GDP has been one of the big debating issues in recent years. Um, I think actually it's become less of a concern in both in terms of politics but also in terms of the markets as well. Um, the issue was if you get the debt to GDP ratio out of hand the market reaction will be so heavy that you'll have difficulty raising funds to cover the cost of that debt. Well, actually, this that's been proved to be completely untrue. In fact, there's been no shortage of raising funds through government debt, government bonds, etc., to enable them to fund what we're paying for at the moment. That, has, that hasn't been an issue. Um, that's the first point to make. Secondly, at this, when the interest rates are so low, the cost of that debt is pretty minimal. So therefore, what you do, that gives you a breathing space then in which you can then start to invest in your economy to grow. And so you grow your way out of a potential recession rather than what happened in 2010 is that you introduce austerity. Um, and what, what that did, was, it wasn't without people saying so, virtually any serious economist from 2010 onwards was advising the government that actually what you do is you don't introduce austerity and take demand out of the economy. What you do, what you do is that you do, you borrow for a period and you invest, you grow the economy, and then whatever debt you have, you can afford to maintain that level of debt and continue to grow, or you can pay some of that debt off, you can reduce it, but you do it in a way which is planned and which is basically in line with maintaining people's standard of living and the public services that you need. What the austerity program did, the neoliberal approach to this, was cut debt by austerity, cut your public services, reduce wages, and as a result of that, you, you wind up in a situation where we have large numbers of people in poverty, we have public services that are so ill-prepared to deal with a crisis like the pandemic, and actually you also then have the, the real risk of, I think, quite significant um, physical instability. So 
And this time round, yes, of course, you've got to borrow where all every country is. You have to use that money to, yes, support on a temporary basis those people who are out of work because they need an income. You have to make sure that you those who are most vulnerable get appropriate levels of benefit and are protected. But then you have to start investing and you invest in to tackle the next crisis. And the next crisis is climate change. So all everything that we've been saying for the last number of years about investing in a green industrial revolution, a green new deal, sustainability, this is the time. This is the heightened time to do it. In that way, you're able to, I think, you're able to ensure that you, you maintain your levels of public services and you improve them, you lift people out of poverty, and you can provide people with a decent life. There's another debate, though, it's alongside this too, which I think we've got to have and has been happening. Um, we've got to talk about how, how we evaluate our society. So the dominance, uh, this is nothing original, the dominance of gross domestic product is the key determinant of what our society should be judged by, I think is open to question. Um, you see what's happened in New Zealand. I met with um, the finance minister down in New Zealand a couple of years ago when we we're developing ideas around well-being budgets. I think we've got to open up our whole debate now about how do we evaluate our economy and is it about GDP or is it about uh, making sure that we develop um, policies which improve the well-being of people overall and above all else we tackle the issue of climate change. So we've got to reopen that whole debate about what our economy is for. It will always come down to <clears throat> the hard facts of can we, can we create wealth, of course it will, but it's the nature of that wealth as well and what we value. Um, there's a whole range of debates and discussions going on, which I which I a part of. Um, we reflected that to a certain extent in some late party policies, but I think there needs to be quite a dramatic um, move to the next plateau in those those debates. Um, in terms of <coughs> excuse me, in terms of the the debate around democracy in the Labour Party. Um, there's, uh, I don't think it's either or whether you have this broader discussion about how the party operates or whether it's individual aspects of reform. Um, look, I think you have to do both. I think there needs to be a whole discussion now about in the Labour Party about what the Labour Party should look like as a social movement. Um, and that means how do we organise ourselves in terms of community organising at the local level? And lots of constituencies are doing this, but it needs to be much more extended much more widely and it does mean as well as how you engage with the wider community in discussing the issues of concern and then also how do you engage in the wider community then in selecting our representatives too so it's opening the doors much more but there were issues that had to be dealt with which meant that um, for example there's an argument around open selections so the parliamentary labor party is selected in a in much more democratic way so therefore they re re reflect the membership the party that much more. We move towards that. People are saying not far enough. That's an open debate itself. And I think that's at every level. There's even the debate going about, you know, the members electing the local leader, the local council, Labour Council or Labour Group. Issues like that should run alongside the debate about broader objectives of the democracy within our party itself. We still haven't really resolved the mechanisms for thorough policy making either. We have a national policy forum um, party conference. I think there's another debate to be had about the ongoing nature of how policy is developed at every level. And that relates to the question that came up earlier, which is about political education within our movement.
we've got to invest so much more in physical education and um, what that means it isn't just about training the mechanics of campaigning of course that's important but it's more about how we understand the world and what the options before us for transformative change well john thank you so very much i mean there's a plethora of questions you've already answered a vast number but there are many many more I don't think we really can continue on with them, but I, I just wanted to say this is actually for this for this academic year, this is the last of our series of lectures. The title we gave to the series was Politics in Crisis. And, you know, we were a bit nervous about it because everything's always in crisis, but never has it been more true than that we're in a state of crisis today. And if you're interested in some of these ideas, some of the ideas that John has been mentioning, our next theme next year is going to be called Reconstruction. So it will be picking up on some of these ideas that perhaps a new social settlement is, is possible. Well, thanks again, John, so much. I mean, we've heard from you um, some of your thoughts about why Labor lost and, uh, and as, as you see it, the central role of, of Brexit as a contingent factor that drove that in an important way. We've also heard about how you think the pandemic um, has at least created the potential to shift the lines of cleavage and the sources of the political terrain on which politics is fought and creates the possibility, at least, for a new normal or, or as you put it, building back better. And you went on, I think, to say to offer some suggestions, especially about economic strategy, as to what would be required in order to build back better. So these are all very live discussions and we thank you again very much for taking up the time to talk to us today. Uh, if everyone was here, they would clap. I will clap on their behalf. Thank you again, and thank you Thanks, very Robin. much to our audience.